Welcome to episode 140 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. So it's been two weeks since our last show. Yeah, it has. How are you feeling about that? Not too bad. <laughs> I think How should I be feeling about it? <laughs> I think we're going to get back on the wagon. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, I agree. I mean, I, we, we need to start getting the interview shows underway. Yeah, um, well, I'll try and set something up for next week. Um, so we could do last weekend because you were still up in uh, New Hampshire on that really intense co- uh, contract. Yeah, I was up uh, on the intense contract, and it just so happened that we had to get the stuff ready for the presentation to the board on Monday, on the Monday. So basically, the Saturday and the Sunday, I was I was under the kibosh and do you know I had to work those two days pretty extensively. Yeah, because you were work, you were working like twelve or fourteen hour days on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because we had scheduled it for Saturday morning, and then you I think you just pinged me on Skype and says like and said you couldn't do it. Right. I tell you what, I'm glad to be I'm glad to be away from that madness. I mean, it's I think it's okay. It's like uh, it's what what you term an ATM run. You know, maybe the odd month once every year or whatever, but. I, don't, I wouldn't want to do that full time. God. It's yeah, it's weird. like robbing a bank. <laughs> it's heavy. It's it's just a lot of hard work. <laughs> it's yeah, right. It's taxing, but well, at least you came away with uh, your coffers full, right? Well, I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that I can clear you know clear down the credit card debt, but um, it'll be that'll be great. Hey, well, hey, so we've had some feedback from listeners that uh, about this idea of uh, starting with tech rather than personal. Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't. It was a listener, <laughs> so a friend of mine, Phil. We we had a little discussion about it, and so we'll get into the tech stuff first, sure. and then do you know we can throw in some personal here and there. Um, I mean, we we do have a whole bunch of personal stuff to do uh, with regards to executive producers and donations and reviews and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we'll cover that in later. Let's let's get let's get rolling. Okay. So, uh, first thing I want to. Uh, Bring up. I, I, I sent you a link to this a couple days ago. I think you read it, was, which was entitled "Steve Perlman's White Paper Explains Impossible Wireless Tech." Yeah, I, I, had, um, a, I had a good look through it, and um, I don't think I fully understand how it's doing it. Even though they they sort of explained it, um, but for, I, maybe you could just kind of explain what the problem is and how they're trying to deal with it. Well, okay. the The, the technology is called Dido, or Distributed Input, Distributed Output. Right, and I guess this guy Steve Perlman is uh, sort of his genius inventor uh, up in the Palo Alto area. He sold his first company, Web TV, to Microsoft for half a billion dollars. Well, and he's—I uh, think he's a PhD in in uh, I don't know information theory or math or something. So he's a bright guy. He's not some crazy guy making crazy claims. Um, and uh, essentially. What what he's trying to do is increase the amount of, um, I guess, effective bandwidth, so that the the way Wi-Fi works is that there's only so much, so many signals that can be on the same Wi-Fi, um, I guess, router at one time before they start interfering with each other, and it's degraded performance or you just get dropped. And the impression uh, I get is it's sort of like when you if you drop two stones into a pond. Then where the interference patterns come, uh, right waves. Those are like radio waves. Yeah. So where where the interference patterns or the radio waves happen, it then basically weakens the signal pretty substantially. So when you have like three computers on your wireless network, each new computer you add, it's creating those interference patterns, and basically that's you're getting diminishing returns on the amount of bandwidth you can then get for each computer that you have. 
it's sort of the amount of information that can be um, that determines that can be sent through a, a, a I guess a certain spectrum, right? Is 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 dictated by Shannon's law, um, and it, it sort of uh, dictates the upper limit um, through a wireless channel, I guess, as we say it. Mm-hmm. And what Perlman is saying is that he thinks that his technology could hit a thousand times that. Um, right now, the technology they've built will allow 10 times that. And there, it doesn't actually um, challenge Shannon's law. What it does is it, 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 it does some fancy math where um, the signals right on top of each other, they sort of augment each other into right. a single or, uh, you know, I, I guess, um, I don't know, they, the, the, rather than interfering and, and destroying the, the information, the information just gets sort of uh, compressed into one another. You know what it kind of reminded me of? I remember seeing an episode of Numbers, and uh, do you remember the TV show Numbers with um, yeah the the Caltech physicist and the FBI agent? They would crack cases using math and physics. Yeah. Um, well, there was one episode where they would hide information in paintings or in digital images. Right, right. Or she not paintings, but digital images of paintings, and so there'd be like two images in within the same painting, so that and it was almost like using some kind of interesting compression algorithms or something so that um, it was there. You just couldn't see it if you weren't looking for it with the right algorithms. Um, and I think the same thing could be said at this. You combine different information sources and they kind of overlay on one another and then you, the certain mathematics will retain the original signals um, that are there. So I, I don't know, but the, the idea that you can increase the effective bandwidth by a factor uh, by an order of magnitude or three orders of magnitude, as he's claiming might be possible, would be, you know, that would transform. Well, for example, when we were at MicroConf, right, because there was, there's, there's um, just a few different wireless, um, what do they call, I guess, base stations. And then you've yeah. got like 100 people all leeching off those, those wireless base stations. There was definitely problems where people were losing signals. So, the, so this, this technology would mean that everyone would have 100% strength for, for their signal yeah, in a situation and- like that. And they were also saying that the range is, is dramatically higher. I mean, some of the numbers they were saying was just... Like a mile. Like a mile for like a, an internal station. Yeah, there, there was another thing that was kind of interesting was that... Um, and we'll just, this, we'll just say this to wrap it up. In one of their experiments, uh, they saw that it uh, transmitted 250 miles <laughs> by bouncing yeah. off the ionosphere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 250 miles. And the one last number I'll throw in there is that... Um, the latency is less than a millisecond compared to a few milliseconds for Wi-Fi and 150 milliseconds for 3G wireless. Wow. So, I don't that's, know. That's key, pretty it, cool. But this is something that will be rolled out like, you know, next year or something, but it's over the next five to ten years. You might see this become a big deal. Well, you know that's, what? Like, there's, there's a bunch of different stuff relating to just wireless. So, for example, wireless power. And, and that, that should be beginning to be rolled out pretty soon. I, I'm expecting within the next couple of years... I'm I'm pretty sure that Apple are going to be one of the first ones to roll it out really nicely because it's what, always you been read the, something on that recently. No, I well I've I've seen you know TED talks about it and things like that, but given that the technology is out there, it just doesn't make any sense that. that well, they I wouldn't. I tried to get the uh, the company to they tried to do, set up an interview. Oh, with did you? The creator of Wytricity company. It's a company at MIT. He's a I think a physics professor uh, at MIT or electrical engineering professor and. He started this company called Wytristy, and it's it's venture funded. Uh, has a lot of money behind it, and they have some high powered brains working there. Uh, it's based, yeah, it's based right out of Cambridge. Um, and you can go to wytristy.com. I think I think we 
we've talked about this before in, in the past, um, and it's really cool. So it's like, uh, you know, like a, 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 a an electrical field will create a, a magnetic field. Electrical current will, can create a magnetic field, and a magnetic field will create a an, ele- an electrical current. Yeah. So that I think they were using some combination of of this properties so that if you created these magnetic fields or electromagnetic fields it would create would allow the electrical field to sort of travel through the air just like a wireless signal um it's pretty cool yeah i mean you gotta watch this new it's been a while since i've read about it so i'm a little foggy on it i mean i can because the one thing about the max is um you know er everything about max about aesthetics and about beauty but it's it's strange that we still have you know i'm surprised that they don't have a dock for example like so that you don't have to have so many wires. It's weird when you have a Mac laptop and you want to, you want to plug it into your screen and you want it plugged into all your other stuff. Got all these ugly wires coming out of it. So I would have thought that uh, Apple would be, you know, one of the first people to work with that technology. Yeah, I, I can see Steve Jobs wanting to jump on that bandwagon because that would be <laughs> super slick. Yeah. If you go to, I'll put a link to it. But on Whitricity, uh, they have a, a a technology page. It's pretty short. That really just goes to the description of. You know, magnetism, electricity, electromagnetism, mag- magnetic induction. How do you spell Y-tricity? Y and tris- W-I, like I said, Wi-Fi. And oh, Y, so not, not, not the, the letter Y. <laughs> no, not Y, yeah. Y is like Wi-Fi, but Y-tricity. So cool. So um, what, uh, what have you been working on tech-wise? I guess you've been just... Um, Totally focused on the contracts. So you probably haven't done any work on Plugio, have you? I have, but I'll tell you what. I would like to do the um, executive producer stuff at the top of the show because I Go feel ahead. like we haven't been that great about it. Okay. Go is, ahead. That, is that cool? Okay, so we've got two executive producers this show, um, and we're going to put links to both of you guys um, in the show notes. So the first one is, as we promised, Toby Osborne um, is a $50 donation executive producer of this episode. Um, thanks a lot, Toby, very much. And uh, as we promised, we're going to bring you up. Uh, we're going to mention you at the top of the show. And also, Ruben Gomez from BidSketch um, is an executive producer. Thanks so much, Ruben, who's, uh, who's, who's a friend of mine and also um, that runs a great, great company, BidSketch.com. Well, he actually, we also interviewed him. Yeah, exactly. And we well, interviewed him. <laughs> so he's up. like, he's the, that's perfect. What we should do is, is, is charge all our interviewers, interviewees. Oh, <laughs> oh by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the <otter box. laughs> so so we also have a shout out from ben boiter um thanks very much ben boiter uh gave a ten dollar uh donation to, um thanks very much that's awesome and we've got a couple of uh itunes reviews that i wanted to mention as well real quick ben, ben um well ben of course is a really active commenter in startup guild in startup guild but he's also been an active commenter on our blog yeah that's true yeah and uh, i think he didn't didn't he ben he he made one of the first big donations if i recall did he? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 I'm saying interesting again. Rack. <laughs> <laughs> you have a quota of you have, you have five interesting. Yeah, I've already done two so far. <laughs> okay. I'll try not to. I'll try to be as uninteresting as possible. Yeah, so do do. That's that's that's, that's that's the plan. Okay, so listen. Let me talk about the reviews. Um, so I, I want to start mentioning the reviews a little bit. The iTunes reviews, and I think I might may even read a couple of them out. So we've had our three most recent reviews are from uh, Christopher Lorenz, uh, Ryder Kala, and Andrew Castle. Would you like me to read them from iTunes? Yeah, we know Andy from um, uh, MicroConf. Oh, cool. Okay, awesome. And, and, uh, and uh, Startup Guild. Okay, so um, I'll read Christopher Lorenz this one, okay? You ready? Go ahead. 
Jason and Justin have a great dynamic and provide great commentary on technology and startups, including their own. Love the discussion shows. Just experienced developers discussing problems in their own startups. The interview shows are good learning tools. Both types of shows are great and I would recommend to any developer or business person thinking about starting a startup. What do you think of that? So is this, is this the affirmation uh, segment of the show? <laughs> you should read these every morning right after breakfast. <laughs> is, it, is, it too, is it too self-serving to read out the, the interviews? Uh, okay, well, that's, I think what, wait, one more. Let's get one more because I need some affirmation. Okay, good. This is, this is, this hope, I hope this will make you feel good, Jason. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. This is from Ryder Carla. Lay it on me. And by the way, Christopher Lorenz, thanks so much for, for that review. Very kind. So uh, Ryder Carla says, Justin and Vincent and Jason Roberts bring charisma, humor, and desire to deliver something enjoyable to every topic they touch in this podcast. There are a handful of podcasts, four that I listen to on a regular basis. And while I find myself frustrated when the hosts or hosts begin to trail off topic, <laughs> I've never felt that way about texting. Well, that's a surprise. I actually enjoy the occasional off-topic riff because Justin and Jason are gen- genuinely likable people and he'd love to sit down with and talk shop with them. And there's, there's a bit more, but I'm not going to keep on going because now I'm embarrassed. Oh, that's really nice. So I guess what we're doing is we're funneling our donations to our reviewers. Is that what we're doing? We're how paying do- reviewers to write nice things for us? I guess. About I, us? How, how, <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Right. <laughs> Okay. That's well, great. Anyway, well, that's really those... nice. Yeah, the, well, those really help our uh, help our visibility on iTunes. I think so. I, I, I mean, we, like what what we really do need, to be honest, is a few other a few reviews. That would be great to get a, a batch of reviews in there in the iTunes. Yes, please, more reviews, more reviews, more affirmation. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I just wanted to get those those things um, in there at the top of the show. Okay, so go on. What were you talking about? Well, I was going to ask you about um, Plugio. And see how that's been going since you were, you're sort of uh, occupied for so much year of the past month with the contract. Let's just say that not putting anything into it has definitely stopped its growth. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, yeah isn't that funny? I mean, it, it pretty much just stalled out ever yeah. since. Uh, yeah, it, which is which is kind of strange. Um, I, I mean, I I sort of thought that. Once you'd kind of latched in the growth, the growth was just going to keep on going. But I don't know whether it was the summer or whether it was not putting, you know, doing any new features or, you know, not continually marketing it or whatever. I mean, I, I've, I don't really see what I changed. But anyway, it's kind of flatlined since then. But an interesting thing about this month versus last month is that it's basically 20 sales down. We're now day 30 of the month and it's 20 sales down versus last month. But what's interesting is that actually the cancellations and sales are kind of equal. So what that means is I've had just as many signups. I've had like 20 signups and 20 cancellations over this month. So that's not the disparity. The disparity is, is that PayPal has this kind of skipped state where if someone, I don't know, they've got some address that's out of date or something happens on their PayPal account. If something goes out of date, then what they do is they skip the payment until that issue is resolved. And that's happened for 20 sales this month. What I'd like to ask a little more, get a little more specific on is the things that you were doing and that you weren't doing. You say you weren't doing as much marketing. What, what type of marketing are you talking about? Well, I had the one guy doing a blog every day, right? So I see you stopped doing that. Yeah, stopped doing that, which I've 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 got back again now, and I'm wondering if that's part of it. I mean, so he he was basically tweeting on Twitter and asking people if they would like to be interviewed on the Plugio blog. 
right? And okay. I'm, I'm just wondering if just that small effort, just even talking to those people, then kind of got them in touch with Plugio and maybe some of them would sign up and other people would read their interviews and sign up. It just They'd- created some awareness. It was just kind of, it was, it was almost like a heartbeat, like we're alive, think about us yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's what just I was thinking. Remember Plugio. Remember Plugio. Yeah, and another thing is, I guess, because I was so focused on, on work on the contract, I was doing less kind of following people, you know, the whole Twitter thing, using Plugio. So um, whenever I follow anyone, what happens is if they, if they follow me, then they get an auto message that says, hi, I'm Justin, and I'm building Plugio. And I guess that brings some awareness. So I guess yep. maybe it's just those two things. The problem, this is the problem because I'm not scientific about it because I don't have metrics and stats. That is definitely a problem, right? So I don't know why it works sometimes. Yeah, it's sort of a black box. Well, I guess that's probably something worth putting some effort into. Right, is building, building some metrics, getting, getting a more systematic way of understanding We'll sort of have a better payoff because if you do things and you, st- and you still don't know if it really worked or how well it worked, it's, it's hard to determine whether you should keep doing it or do something else. So it could lead to a lot of wasted money or missed opportunities because you might stumble on something that worked, but you attributed to something else because you didn't have the metrics. And so you stopped doing it. And then it wasn't until six months or a year later, you really you realize, oh, maybe that did work and you know all that, all that kind of stuff. So, but the numbers are still so small, only with like 60 people a day coming to the site, right? So it's difficult to do any kind of metrics. Yeah, I guess. I, you know, I just, I, I don't know. You have to think about whatever clever ways you can do to track things. I mean, you don't want to put too much time into it, but it kind of reminds me of what a friend of mine used to say. He's, he was in the high-frequency trading business, uh, cause you met him. Yeah. Uh, once and he was used to say that it's not enough to make money in trading. You have to understand why you're making money. Yeah. So, like, if you have some trading strategy, so X, Y, and Z thing, you know, factors line up, and that means I'm going to buy. If these things happen, I'm going to sell. And you really have to understand why those factors work and why they don't, uh, as opposed to just sort of just, oh, well, I don't know, it's making money. Uh, that's not good enough because they could be just randomness. And uh, then it's, have a hard, it's hard to iterate on randomness. Even if you got lucky and you made money, you know, sometimes if you flip a coin, you can hit, hit on uh, red 10 times in a row. When you go to anyone's been and played roulette, I'll tell you that. Um, and uh, it's fairly good to understand, try and as best you can understand why, why you're making money. Well, so here's the, here's the thing. The changes that I made, the, the, you re- remember the whole presentation that I gave at MarketConf about getting more conversions, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I feel like they are still on target. I'm still getting higher conversions. The thing is, I just sort of feel like less people are finding Plugio is the issue. Because I'm still, I, I, you know, it's like I said, remember, it, it's just down to like 0.5 person a day. <laughs> you know that's Four that's kind of what people. makes the difference people. yeah yeah i have people. a person <laughs> right so it's sort of you know it feels like what does that mean like a half you can always see funny it's like if you looked at an, an not a statistical basis so a person sort of stumbles upon it but then they click off it accidentally and that's sort of a half find uh, it, it's just it's just basically dividing the number of people that signed up by 30 no, days. I, I know i know yeah. I know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, we're only talking about very small fluctuations. And, and that's the, the thing that I still need to master is basically how do I create that really big traffic stream coming to the site? And, you know, somehow that needs to be worked out and figured in there. Well, I guess now that you're back from your contract, you can start funneling some intellectual energy into that. All right. So, well, so how's things going with you and how's things going with Epic Night? Well, first of all, before we get into that, I was going to say one thing. You, you had a you had a um, 
a problem with some uh, SQL queries on Plugio. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. About. I thought before we leave Plugio, I thought we should bring that up because that was a, I thought it was an interesting topic. Yeah, good point. Thanks for reminding me of that. So, so I had some um, SQL calls related to the friend finder, where it would go in for each user, and it would as as it sort of um, cycled through each user's ID. I was using an order by just to be sure to be sure, even though I was only actually picking off the latest ID of each user to process, I was using an order by and it was an order by on a table of, I guess, 2 million rows. So I didn't really need that order by, but that was in there. And what happened was because that was such a frequently called query, um, it would do that order by and essentially trip up the whole, the whole process. So I, I looked into the server and found out that basically the load was getting worse and worse and worse. I turned on the um, the MySQL slow query log. Have you ever heard of that? I had not heard of it until you mentioned it before. Yeah, so there's there's like a configuration <clears throat> that you can put in the in the my.ini that basically says just just dump any queries that take longer than X number of seconds. So, Which is funny because before you mentioned that, yeah. after you told me your problem, I said, you know, maybe we should do is write into your library anytime I query takes longer than you know two seconds or something uh if it takes longer than five seconds then you should be emailed about it <laughs> if it yeah. takes more than say like a second or half a second it should log it and then at the end of the day email you all this the slowest queries or something you know something like that so i had these these queries that were taking like 50 seconds and and the, i guess the reason why they were taking longer and longer and longer was because each time it was doing its query it was setting a lock on the table or something like that and um that all the locks were tripping up over each other and then it was taking longer to release the table. And I just, I don't know, the server just basically fell over and I found out that it was these order by, order by queries. When you say order by, it's order by, right? Order by, yeah, sorry, order, order by. by. So Let's make sure our, America, our American listeners <laughs> understand what you're talking about. It's not auto, it's not, it sounds like you're saying auto buy, like automatically buy something. Yep, yeah, order by. And I mean, I didn't, I, I, I sort of knew in the back of my mind that order by would have a bad effect. Um, but I didn't realize well, that it could have this. What, what was the column that order by was? It, it wasn't like a primary key column, but it was it was a key column. So I think what it I was, was indexed. It was it was an index column. Yeah, it was an index. It was column. an index column, and it was still slow. Yeah, yeah. I, I I mean, once again, I don't know. I mean, so some of the some of the changes that I made was I reverted back from um, InnoDB to MySAM. So that was uh, that. That helped. That that speeded up a little bit, and then I removed the order by. And well, then, how much did the um, the NODB to MISAM improve performance? I, I I wasn't scientific about it. Sorry. So I, do you, are you sure that it improved it, or are you just guessing? Guessing. <laughs> so you don't even know for it. it might have just been the order by. Uh, it could have been. I don't know. Um, so you just made both changes, and then said it seems faster. Yeah. Well, I, I basically, I was looking at the server load, which was running at around 400% CPU, which I didn't even know was possible. But um, <laughs> <laughs> then after making, the, you know, the, after making the, the first change, it went down a little bit. And then after making the order by changes, it went down massively. So, uh, wow. It would be interesting to dissect that query and try and figure out what, what the problem was. So the reason why I did the order by in the first place was because each user has a bunch of different friend suggestions to uh, recommend it. And when those, as each new friend suggestion is added, it's added with a new ID. So what I wanted to do was to process each friend suggestion in order. So that to take, in other words, take the oldest friend suggestion off the stack first. 
Okay. I don't necessarily need to do that. It was just, you know, to be nice, you know, to be sure, to be sure that it was happening in the order that I was expecting it. But it wasn't really needed. So that's why I removed the order by. Right. See what I'm saying? So that, you know, made a massive difference. And uh, they'll just be processed in a slightly jumbled order now. So, but the, but the, the, the big issue was that uh, the system was becoming unresponsive for a number of your users? Yeah, basically the site was down. You know, the site, the site was unusable. Um, and, and this is the other weird thing. I don't know why it just kind of happened. It just hit like some kind of critical mass. Maybe it was just some critical mass of usage. But oh. uh, yeah, no, it, it just happened because I've got all of these alerts now. So basically there's a, there's a plugio.com forward slash status. So if you if you go there, that's like a, a third party service service that checks to see whether Plugio is up or not. Well, what's the uh, what's the site? Because I know they're serve they're like tools like was it Monet or something like that? And uh, siteuptime.com. Siteuptime.com. Huh. Which is pretty okay. good, you know. It's pretty good, and it's it's just like a, I th- I think I pay nineteen dollars a month for that. And so basically, what it does is it pings various scripts on Plugio and tells me whether give you know gives the current status of whether it's okay, and it'll email me if anything goes down. So, I mean, I was aware of the issue within, you know, I don't know, a couple of minutes of it, of it starting to happen. Oh, so you had been using this prior to the issue? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it wasn't like it was down for like 12 hours and you just happened to get some emails from user, users complaining? Within about five minutes, I had on site, I had an alert saying that, that we're having issues and that we're working on them. Right. No, yeah. that's good that you had that going, yeah. I, I had it fixed within about an hour. Good. Well, yeah, that's so not good. too bad. Okay, so come on, let's let's hear a little bit about App Ignite. What's going on with you? Well, before we get App Ignite, um, one thing I wanted to bring up was uh, Uber. So oh yeah, Uber is one of one of my uh, client uh, clients, mm-hmm. and uh, so Curtis, who's the uh, I guess he's the director of engineering for Uber. I, I can always forget what his title is. So he and I have been working on the uh, dispatcher or the dispatching system for Uber, which is sort of the the brain. And that's using um, Node.js, right? Yeah, so it was originally built using you know, MySQL and PHP, and, and uh, then um, I was brought in to rebuild it. I, I, I worked on it for three or four months, and then Curtis jumped in because they needed to deploy it, and it was just happened that I was going out of country for a week and a half. <laughs> so he had to get his hands on it and was um, sort of integrating it with some of the API calls that they had um, with the new API that they had built in Python. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... The the new Node.js based dispatching system is flying. I mean, it it spikes at like one percent, one point five percent, even though um, the 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 growth of Uber is phenomenal. In fact, right now the uh, an average day and a weekday is what New Year's Eve was like hmm. in terms of the number of users, and number of driver, number of clients and drivers. That's great. Yeah, so that's really cool. Um, and I've been for the last you know uh, I don't know month or so working. Someone on the dispatcher, mostly actually I've been working on what they call God view, which is like the air traffic control, mm-hmm. <laughs> what an air traffic equivalent of an air traffic controller would look at. So you can see all the drivers and clients and their status and what's going on, who's picking up who. You kind of have like a, a Google map and you got this big grid where you see, you know, all the everybody. Um, so, well, anyway, uh, it turns out that um, I guess Joyant and Ryan, Ryan Dahl is the creator of Node and he works at Joyant. Joyant sponsors um, him working on Node, that they want to do a case study of of what we of our use of Node.js, so That's of our awesome. building of the dispatching system, which is funny. Um, and because uh, I remember when I first brought up the idea, this was in 
December when Travis, who's the CEO of Uber, um, he you know wanted me to come on and and he said we got big problems and we need we need you know your help to sort of figure out how to solve this scaling problem. Um, and so they they came down during uh, I guess a few days right around Christmas and rented a house in Marina del Rey, which right down the beach. And I came down I went down there for a day and we got out the whiteboards and I said all right. I think we should use Node.js. <laughs> I drew some diagrams of like, well, here's a dispatching system and here's a f- the phone's calling in and you know, this is how the messages would be sending. And he's like, wait a minute, what the hell is Node.js? He hadn't even heard of it before. <laughs> no. Well, this is also back in December, right? And he's just like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, you know? But how did you know? I mean, how, like, surely it was just a guess on your part that Node.js would be able to deal with it. Well, that's funny. Um, we we had interviewed in, in episode ninety. We interviewed Amir Salenhafendek, and he did uh, Todoist and Plurk. And the reason we found out about him is we had interviewed um, uh, Luke Robloski. Robloski. Yeah. And we asked him what was a great UI, and he said, "Oh, there's something called uh, I think Todoist." <laughs> yeah. And so we saw that, and then we said, "Ah, hey, let's invite Amir on, the the creator of a Todoist." And anyway, he he talked about on his blog how. Um, he used Node.js to build some of the real-time chat and real-time updates in Plurk, which is, and Plurk is kind of like a, what is it? It's kind of like a, it's kind of a social network type of a thing. Mm-hmm. Big in Japan, I think. And um, in, in the couple blog posts he had written, he seemed like, he, he felt that it scaled and was pretty stable. And, it's, and then it worked really nicely. Right. And so just based on that, I'm like, yeah, I think we should just Let's give it a try. Right. I mean, it wasn't like I had done some, you know, deep, extensive technology feasibility study, right? I and mean, now you're going to be on the front page of Node.js Weekly. <laughs> 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 well, you know, I mean, I'm kind of a cowboy, right? I mean, in terms of, I just like, yeah, I think it'll work. Let's do it. You know, I just do, read, do a little reading, maybe play around with it a little bit, and I don't know, give it a shot. Um, so what and, database system are you using then? Okay, well, it's still, there's still the primary database for, for storing um Everything is MySQL, yeah. but we use MongoDB for um, keeping up with the real-time state of the dispatch server. So if it goes down, it can reinstantiate itself very quickly. And it, 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 the reason we use Mongo is because it's very has very fast writes, and uh, and that's just for like so that's just it, backup. Just, so Mongo's just backing it up. It's not you're not actually. It's kind um, of a snapshot of it's effectively like a snapshot of, of the of the of the mem of what's in memory for the um, the dispatcher. And does that write it as like a, J- a JSON object in Mongo? Well, everything's stored as BSON. Oh, BSON. Okay, okay right. Uh, which is binary JSON. And you write you write it, you pass it as JSON, it converts it into BSON. So it's just a it's just sort of like a, a representation of the internal data of the trips, clients, and drivers. And why Mongo versus any other of the NoSQL databases? <laughs> Again, it was just a shoot from the hip. Like, hey, man, I think Mongo is what we should use. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no, no kind we of scientific. We interviewed the guy from Mongo. <laughs> yeah, we interviewed the guy from Mongo. So let's, so let's use that. And was Mongo easy? I mean, has that been easy to use? Yeah. Well, okay. So first of all, when I first brought up these ideas back at the back in the, at that day and at the beach house, yeah, you know, Curtis was there, and Curtis had heard of um, he had heard of Node, and I think he made just like 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 me had read maybe a blog post and said. Hey, I don't think he'd read quite as much, but he was like, yeah, you know, that sounds kind of cool. Um, and Travis, Travis is very concerned about uptime. He's like, this thing cannot crash. It can always go down. And, you know, uh, 
Travis's previous company that he sold to Akamai, Red Swoosh. Travis, we also interviewed on, and I don't know what episode it was, back around 50-something. And, you know, so he was really big into uptime and uh, instability. And Curtis was a little uh, concerned about that because he, knowing that it might be him the, who would be up in the middle of the night if thing crashed. Right. He, he, had, he had reason to be concerned, but he was intrigued by the idea of using Node. Um, I wanted to use Node because um, of my background in high-frequency trading. It's like when you have a, a real-time system, so you have stuff continually coming in to uh, requests coming in or data coming in at a high pace and coming and going right back out, and these, and these same data objects are, are essentially need to be kept alive. I mean, you, you don't do a SQL query, hit a, hit a script page and do a SQL query and maybe cache the results. I mean, that's just retarded. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so if like you're building a stock and you're getting a hundred or a thousand updates per stock per second, I mean, imagine doing that through SQL queries. Right. Couldn't would be make done. no sense. Right. So you write it using C or maybe .NET or Java, and it's just it's just a persistent program. And I said, you know, we can do the same thing with Node and JavaScript, and it, it won't need to be as fast as in, in you know as as something. It won't be it won't be as fast as a C because it's not real time. It's more of like a soft real time, so that if something gets behind, at, you know. If you know a few hundred milliseconds, that's not the end of the world. Um, whereas in trading, it is. So I had in my I, my mind this idea of a um, an architecture that's very similar to the a trading infrastructure. Interesting. And, so what what are the like? Is, is are there any special things that need to be done? For example, is it all about locking? You know, uh, yeah, things so, like that. Well, one thing I just want to say is, um, yeah, okay. I guess I'll answer that first. So. Um, one thing you have to be careful with, uh, the Node.js process, if, if you have a problem and it crashes, it just goes down, right? So, like, if you have a PHP page that crashes, the next request comes in and it just loads, the, you know, Apache just loads the PHP page. Right. Right? I mean, it's not like it's dead forever. But if Node goes down, it's dead. That's it. I mean, no, 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 nothing happens. What, so, so, what do you mean? If, 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 if I send through a bad query that somehow blows up the system, then the whole system's blown up? That's right. That's right. What, so, well, is that because there's no child threads? So is that is that the reason just why? Just one process, and um, so if you if you send in like a you know some badly formatted you know JSON or something, and you have a parsing error, and you're not catching the error, yeah, you know it's it's you're, it's boom, it's blow up time. That's so. That's weird. So how do you deal with that then? So basically, you do a lot of try catches. <laughs> oh, okay. You you really have to be um, careful about. You know, uh, things like if you look something up in a dictionary or hash, you better make sure that that's there. And if it's not, deal with it. Don't just assume it's there because if it's not there and, and you get some kind of error and you, you go down. So we did, um, we went through, I mean, this is something you learn over time about how um, careful you need to be. Um, the second thing is, this is something in architecture that uh, Curtis brought from his time at... Um, Red swoosh, mm-hmm. which is that we would have a layer of what he called connection nodes, which would be sort of like your kind of equivalent like a proxy server. Right. You know, so like something you get servers come in and it would send, depending on where you're located, what city you're in, it would send the request to the right dispatch server, the dispatch server for New York or San Francisco or Chicago or whatever. And then the second layer would be the dispatch servers. And there would be one master for a region or for a city, and there would be any number of slave machines. Mm. And he had this vague outline of like doing something like that where each tier was sort of independent of the other tier. And what we ended up doing, um, and I remember we did the whole, we wrote it in like two hours. We recreated a library called uh, Slave Master. Hmm. 
which essentially every server starts up and has a unique ID, and the one with the lowest ID takes precedent as the master. So if there's no master, they all figure out, okay, well, who's the master? They all open up a socket connection and kind of communicate with each other and figure out, like, who's got the lowest ID? Okay, you're it. You're the master. And then if you go down... If that master goes down and then uh, all the slaves are sitting there and they go, all right, well, who's the master? Then it's like, okay, who's got the lowest ID? Now you're the master, you know, load up from MongoDB and you're alive. And then just no loss of continuity. And the, um, the connection nodes, which are getting in requests from the clients uh, until there's a master. So if you have like a you know, couple hundred milliseconds where there's no master, um, it will just wait until one of them is elected as the master. So then, you've uh, sort of created, you've created like a, a child, um, an Apache child situation of your own within Node. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. We just, I don't know, we just created this sort of a slave master, multi-tier, dynamically allocating. <laughs> dynamic. That's interesting. So what, so are you going to, um, uh, that? so this is the thing that they're going to be talking to you about, right? That they want to interview about. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it because I was just on, like, a conference call with uh, Curtis and uh, Travis a few di- couple days ago about it. And um, I guess they want to do some case study. And I guess Ryan, I think it was Ryan or maybe one of the core guys on the team was really excited when they heard about Slave Master because they've been talking about how, what important issue that is. Mm. They were really, you know, hopeful that we were going to outsource it. So maybe uh, you mean open source, open source it? it? What's that? You mean open source it? I mean, open source it, right? Yeah. And I, I, I thought that, um, I guess I thought that Curtis had, he would talk, cause Curtis gave a talk at NodeConf about, about some of this stuff uh, a few months back, and he t- mentioned open sourcing it, and I never heard anything more about it, so I, I don't know if he actually did push it out or not. But um, it's funny to think that we, like, we wrote that thing in like, you know, two or three hours in, my, in the bat cave. He's just sitting here on my couch, <laughs> his laptop, and I'm sitting here, and I'm like, all right, well, I don't know. I think what we should do is this. It's like, okay, we're just kind of, we're going back and forth, you know, thinking of edge cases and, and experimenting, and eventually it just kind of worked. I mean, my recollection was it was only like a few, maybe a few hours of work. I think we went to Pollo Loco for lunch, and I think by the end of the day at five, we, it was done. It Listen, worked. I mean, you know, a lot, of, a lot of great things start that way. I mean, Twitter's an example, you know. Yeah, uh, well, little, you know, and things. Curtis, I have to say one thing is Curtis is a is a is a smart developer. He's a um and we work well together. We we complement each other really well. He's um he's a really good tester and he's really good at thinking of edge cases. Um and he's he's kind of conservative where I, where I got more of a cowboy, so we kind of you know, balance each other out that way, I guess. But uh okay. I just that was kind of cool that how the whole thing started by just like a kind of a guess that would work and us just kind of you know, I don't know, just tackling the problem and just building it and not having any particular expertise in it and node or anything and then just building this thing and it working. Sweet. So um, I guess we should move on to a different topic. One of the yeah. things we're trying to do is to uh, limit topics to 10 minutes, if at all possible. Um, so one, Which is particularly hard for me. <laughs> so any food we haven't spoken about yet. Okay. Okay, so probably uh, worth giving a little update on that. Um, we've done... Would you say we finished most of the mockups now? I think everything other than say like a maybe did we we didn't do like a register page? Yeah, we, we haven't done we haven't done a register. We haven't done we have sort of done payment, but I mean, yeah, we haven't done the kind of ancillary marketing pages, but we've done the main product. We've done like th- I think we I think if I my last count we had about thirty eight mockups. Right, right. With with maybe fifteen to fifteen of those being emails, fifteen to something like that. So maybe. Maybe twenty 
or so, 20 to 20 to 25 are pages, 10 to 15 are emails. Do you think that we're um, that there's anything prohibiting us from saying who our designer is and you know no. what we've got going on there? No, go ahead. Okay, well, so you've um, you've actually know the full name of the designer. I know his first name is Daniel, um, and, I, and it's funny because I actually found I actually found him through the, through his work. Like, I really like the Clout website, and said right. to, and said to you, "Wow, I wish we could have you know a design that was something along these lines." And so then you did the homework and said, right, who designed this site? <laughs> and came back to me and said, hey, this is the guy who designed it. Right, right. I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce Daniel's last name. It's, it's like uh, Arsenault. Arsenault. He's in Montreal. Okay. And uh, yeah, so well, you kept going on and on about clout, like <laughs> you, you, how much you loved it and <laughs> wanted it to look like that. And I agreed. It was, you know, I thought it was good. And, um, but you, you were really excited about it. So I, I did a search. I'm like, you know, I just asked the Goog who design clout and luckily someone had asked that question on Quora and and whoever answered it you know knew who it was and so I searched that guy on Google found him got in contact with him and uh, turns out Daniel's worked with a lot of um, a lot of startups so so here's the thing remember our discussion about I was saying look you know I it would be cool if we could have the same guy do the logo as the guy who's going to do the design and you were like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But then after, I don't know, how long did you speak to this? You speak to Daniel for? Are you the first time you met him? Anyway, you spoke maybe to half, forty-five minutes, half hour, forty-five, 45 minutes. minutes. You <laughs> you skyped me and said, he's the one. He's going to do the logo and the design. <laughs> and you were like, yep, this is the guy. I still think that nine times out of ten, you're going to be better off having a logo specialist designing your logo and having a UI web designer doing your web UI. Right. Having two in one, I just think you're going to get higher quality results because you're just having specialists do what they that they do best um now that doesn't mean there isn't the occasional um designer that's that's very good at both and if you can get someone who's very good at both um then you might be able to save some money and save some time yeah well, we'll see in the end i mean we'll see if the logo and the design comes out as is good i mean i think i'm i'm confident that the ui will will come out well and i think the logos he's done have been nice so we'll see if it all comes out well but it definitely is is easier than to deal with one person than having to do with two two right yeah so so daniel is starting work for us on monday and we've done um what is the word what is that thing that we had to do we a had brief. to fill, we had to fill out a client brief and we've had a couple of discussions with him and um he's going to be working working for us for a couple of weeks one thing he did does which i thought was really cool is he, is he creates a, a mood board what's a which, mood board so he he i guess he didn't show any examples because we couldn't screen share while on conference call yeah. on a conference call but when i initially talked to him he showed me the mood board that he created for some of his clients and essentially it's like it's just like one giant page that has a lot of the visual elements and might have it'll have the logo it'll have some maybe sample what uh you know, different types of text and, and different types of uh, maybe what the business cards might look like and just kind of like the whole brand and then a good sense of what the, uh, the website UI elements would look like. Right. Um, he, had, he had started a, a design firm back in the late 90s and did that up to the, you know, at some point, he had, uh, to the mid-2000s, I think, and he had like up to, he had like a pretty, I think it was pretty large, I think like 100 people. Hmm. And he got tired because it was all meetings and management, and he just said he wanted to go about on his own again. So I think he's he's learned how to do that kind of stuff, like mood boards. I think comes out of working with larger clients, and um, 
I, I thought it was a good idea. I liked it. And uh, so he's going to create a mood board. So the way it's going to work is the, is the first week he's going to create a mood board, which is going to have like a, 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 his, his concept for the logo and for the UI elements, the colors, the tech, the fonts, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then we'll probably go back and forth a little bit on that during the first week. And then the second week, he's going to do like, um, I don't know, it was like four or five of the key pages. So what did we decide in the end about whether we were going to have uh, like an image of a Kung Fu guy versus the text of the logo? There was some sort of discussion that we had about that. Yeah. So the the key thing is, is, is any foo is getting across what the foo means, like getting, getting that, getting that across quickly and simply without having to spend a lot of time explaining it right. or going over the top on it. And, um, he, one thing you had brought up and I think an earlier podcast, you said, well, what are, you know, we're going to use like a character like hip monk, right. you know, read at the alien or something. And, and I was like, I, you know, I don't know. And, uh, but the more we kind of wrestled with the idea of like what kind of logo image would we use that would explain it, it just seemed like it would be very hard and, and a really to have some small abstract image really explain it. And explain the foo. Explain the foo. <laughs> and without us having to then back it up with having all this additional copy on the front page. Um, right. And because then he showed me Zendesk, which has like this sort of like, I don't know. Like a, Z, like a, a Buddha, like a Buddhist, Buddha. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's it. Like they don't go and talking about find your Zen or anything. They don't go over the top on that. They just show Buddha. You got it. Right. I get the Zen in the in desk. OK. And, yeah. And so, I, so that character basically embodies the concept of, of Zen and basically peace of mind. But but for, the only thing is, is Fu doesn't really I don't, I'm, I'm interested to know how, how it's going to work. Very interested. Well, I think I think if you do like a Kung Fu. Right. I think Kung Fu guy, I think it should come across pretty quickly. I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But um, but then I mean, so the only danger is, is people will think, OK, this is a martial arts site. Right. So somehow it needs to, I, I've got, it's really interesting. I mean, what, what is he going to do? I, I don't know. Well, we'll see. I mean, yeah. that's, that's why you get a creative designer. They come up with creative ideas. So hopefully we'll get something to work. We'll know this time next week. Yeah. We'll know this time next week. But um, yeah, so the second week it was, um, it's the, um, it's going to be the, the key pages. I think it was going like to a search and a public profile and a few right. other pages. And then the, and then the uh, third week, if we need it, would be any additional pages that we'd want. I mean, obviously, we could take the base pages and the base UI elements, and you and I could kind of do what we needed. We'll probably need to go three weeks, my yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, and he's, the way he charges is interesting. He charges by the week. So it's $2,000 a week. So yeah. if for three weeks, it's going to cost us uh, 6K or each of us 3K, which ain't cheap. But for some of his caliber, if he gets us... Uh, and this come, and it comes across as really high, really high quality. Then I think it'll probably be worth it. Yeah. So that's so that's um, Daniel, and that's Anyfu. That's where we're at. We're very excited about it. And um, the way that we're actually going to work it out then is once he's done those designs, I'm going to basically convert them into CSS and HTML. So I'll cut I'll cut them up, and I'll be working on any JavaScript front end widgets. And Jason's going to use um, Affignite to tie the back end together. Yeah, so I'll generate, I'll build the first version of the, I guess, the whole infrastructure. And uh, you'll do the templates and the CSS, yeah. T- so, CSS and the kind of little JavaScript-y kind of nice effects and things like that. Right, so I guess we'll, we, the one of the big, the big widgets is going to be the scheduling widget. Oh, yeah. 
and that, that'll 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 probably take you some time to do to do that really well. Yeah, to make it look really pro shop, really slick. So that's going to be a key. That's going to be key to get that done right. So another another thing about any food that I've been looking into is the payments processing, and you've turned me on to Braintree.com right to do the payment processing. Now it's interesting. Um, oh, that word again. God, I've got to get it out of my head. Okay, so with with Braintree, they you do have to have a merchant account. They will help you set up a merchant account, but you do have to have a merchant account. So that's going to be interesting. I've been assigned. Oh <laughs> I've been assigned a salesperson. Um, okay. I've left two messages, uh, but they haven't got back to me. They have um, sent me an email, and basically, it's like an introductory email that says, "Go and look at this information." But uh, they haven't got back to me on a personal level to to talk things through. So, are there any um, estimates on how long it'll take to set up a merchant account? Not that I've easily been able to find. Um, yeah, so it's like a merchant account to me is like a it's kind of almost like a credit account. I think that's what it is. It's like you, it's like you get this intermediary credit account, uh, yeah. and they will kind of take care of the money. So it's different to your bank account. Do you, right. do you do you do you understand how it works? I mean, I just know that any any time you're doing you know these sort of payment systems, if you're not using PayPal or something, you're supposed to have a, a merchant account. That's what I understand. But I mean, the thing that, the thing is, PayPal does give you what Braintree gives you. I mean, you you can take payments completely on your site. You don't need to pass anyone off to PayPal. You just you just use PayPal Payments Pro, which costs thirty dollars a month. And then the other thing is we've got the built-in way of paying people. Yeah, I'd be I just I was just worried about the uh, pricing, like how much it was going to take per transaction to do PayPal. Yeah, I, I so like I said, I mean I'm I'm researching it. I guess what I'll do is I will do a very detailed research and then come back with a different pricing and then we can make a decision. Yeah, because for us if we're charging a commission rate, let's say we're charging a commission rate of 10%. Yeah. Okay, and if we end up having to pay three percent to PayPal for every transaction, well, you have to you have to with a merchant account anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, or whatever it is. So I mean, whatever the we are, so what we need to do is look at very specifically what the price differences are. Yeah. Um. So you know, what two or three percent? I mean, that could be two. That could be twenty or thirty percent of our of our gross revenue. Um, a difference. So we want to be careful that if well, it turns out the PayPal's. In aggregate, is five percent. This other one's two percent, and that's a huge difference in aggregate. Right. Now, maybe for the first six months or year, you know, or maybe even longer than that, our revenue is low enough that it's not worth setting up a merchant account. They just go with PayPal, and then once we get to a certain size, we're like, well, we're paying a lot of money to PayPal. <laughs> yeah. In which case, now it's worth the time to set up a merchant account. So, yeah, it may be worth it. Says both you and I have both set up our own. Uh, pay, we've all we both set up uh, systems that use. Uh, the the PayPal API, that might be the way to start. Well, the one the one that you've set up is is closer because the one that you've set up is basically that does direct. That's an on site one, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Whereas my one kind of pipes people through PayPal, so they go through the PayPal payment process. I have done that for another client as well, so that may be the way for us to go. Um, and they, you know, they also accept American Express and all the different cards, so. Yeah, I think credit card is the key thing. I mean, I think a lot of our clients are going to be businesses. Yeah. And they're not going to be, it's not like a, you're, you're going through the front door of a company and say, hey, we want you to use us. It's going to be people who have access to an account within, a, within the 
a developer group or something at a company says, hey, we need some expertise, expert help on X, Y, and Z, and they just use the, the card that they have. So I'll do research on that and work out the pricing and then bring it back to the show and uh, we can discuss it then. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and also if you, and you'll, you'll of course know the, the numbers on PayPal, so it'll be interesting to compare yeah. apples to apples on that. I will. Okay, cool. Um, you got any topics? Yeah, yeah. So one thing I want to bring up, I forgot the one thing I mentioned about Uber. So um, we're going to write a, a big article on Uber, uh, on our Node.js infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And Travis really wants uh, Curtis and I to write this thing. And I suggested to Curtis, I said, you know what we should do is let's write it like a story. And let's do a, uh, each one of us write our version of it. And they just get ing- intermingled. Like you write a paragraph, Curtis, and it's like your perspective. And then my perspective, like how it went along, because it's really kind of a funny story. Okay. Of how it goes. So it's kind of like uh, he said, of a he said, she said, it's like engineer, two engineers, you know, one problem. <laughs> and it just shows what I'm thinking about and what he's thinking about. Because he's up in San Francisco and he's interacting with the other engineers and he just got pulled in from Expensify like two days before and, you know, he's dealing with Travis's uh, ideas on everything. And then I'm here by myself, kind of isolated in Pasadena and what I'm thinking about it. So I thought that might be a really kind of a funny way to do it because we could be just saying conflicting things in our, in our each one paragraph or the other. It's like, hey, they're not really thinking along the same lines, you know. Sounds like a good fun. idea. Yeah, so we'll, I, I started writing. I've written about uh, half of it, half of at least the first draft, and so we'll maybe get something out next week. So you, now you said you were going to send me a bunch of uh, links for me to preview before the show. I did. I did. I was, gonna, I was actually going to send you an email last night apologizing that I forgot, but then I realized it was too late anyway because you were probably already asleep. Um, I meant to do that. Uh, in the future, I'm going to try and send you links so that you're better prepared, at least for the things that I want to bring up. So do you have any tech links? Well, I, I was uh, going to bring up um, a couple other uh, things, rather than links. I was going to bring up something that I thought might be interesting. Um, Go on. So, um, one thing uh, is that uh, I ha- I'm, one thing I'm working on Uber is this God view mm-hmm. uh, thing, and and I have to, and I wanted to create. We I've designed it so that it looks a lot like Google Maps. So on the left hand side, you have this sort of this left pane, the left column, which is where the text is. Mm. And in Google Maps, they have a really cool custom scroll bar that's really kind of narrow. It's seven pixels wide, and and they don't have a lot of space. That they they're trying to save um, horizontal space, right? So that's probably why they did it. It also looks really cool. And so I wanted to do the same thing. And so I was like, I started messing around. I started building my own. I mean, I've built uh, you know plenty of custom you know widgets before. Um, and sliders and different things, progress bars or whatever. So I said, all right, well, um, I'll just build, build it. And then after spending a couple hours, maybe like an hour and a half, I was like, you know what? I was like, I should probably just make sure that there doesn't already exist something like this out there. Right. Right. Cause everyone was like, you know, well, there's a jQuery plugin that does that. You know, cause I always hear that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a jQuery plugin. Right. So, so, I hold, go, so hold on, the, 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 the slider, are we talking about the plus and minus slider? No, Google we're Maps? talking about a normal scroll bar. Because I'm looking on Google Maps, I don't see it right now. How do I get no, to you, it? You would, need, you would need like a, uh, to find directions from like somewhere in California, somewhere in New York, so that's nice and so it fills out with a series of directions. And then a scroll bar will appear on the right side, sort of like, a, like an overflow auto setting. Yeah, it just looks like a regular um, Mac OS scroll bar to me. But no. maybe, maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. Anyway, go on. Wrong thing. So, um, 
I found this thing called I think it was called J Scroll Pain or something, and it was oh J- yeah yeah we're using that we we're using that on the project I'm working on. It's it's actually great. Yeah, I, I think it just I think it's it's really good. It works across. It seems to work across a lot of browsers and has a lot of settings. And I I messed around with that thing for like two, through two maybe three hours trying to get it to work in the context I needed to because I'm my my content's dynamic dynamically updating the width and and yeah. you cost, I allow it to to the the width of the of the box it needs it can be is dynamically adjusted and that just screwed everything up. Like it just did yeah. not handle that, and it would just kind of get lost. And even if you tried to recreate it, or you call reinitialize, and it was supposed to reconfigure itself based on its containing parent, and it just basically freaked out. It's great. For, was, so this is J Scroll Paint. Now it is what I've I've seen exactly the same thing. So it's great for static content, but if you dynamically change the content, it's it doesn't seem to expose functions that will kind of reinitialize them and reset the state. And then all of a sudden, the, sc- the scroll positions are all off and, and that kind of thing, right? Yeah, if the scroll position was off, that would be the least of my problems. Right. That was like, I mean, it, it just was gone. Like, it just disappeared. It wouldn't come back. I'd have to like, and uh, I was like, well, it was just another example. It's like, you know what? <laughs> well, at least I could say, look, I tried, right? Because, you know, I know I'm always accused of the having NIH syndrome, non-invented here syndrome, and, you know, but I tried. You know, I tried, and uh, then I then I because first I started feeling guilt and bad. I, I felt a little guilty. Oh, first I felt excited because I like building my own stuff. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. I'm gonna build this cool uh, scroll bar, right? And then after an hour and a half or so on it, I started feeling guilty, like, oh, you know, I'm building this for a client, and if there's something I could have downloaded and set up in 20 minutes, and instead I spent a day working on this thing, then I guess I'm gonna. That's not, you know, fair. Yeah. But then you go and you spend three hours, you know, banging your head against the wall, and you're like, "All right, I did it. See, I tried." <laughs> okay, okay. But the que- the question that I'm I would be thinking right now, in fact, I it is the question that I'm thinking, is given that this thing gets you so close, right? Why don't you contact the guys and become a contributor? And because remember, they they've got a lot of other stuff already in there as well. For example, mouse wheel trapping across yeah, all the all I, I different browsers and stuff and stuff I, like I already that. Know how to, I've already done that. I already know how to do that. I got my own code that does that. Um, see, the thing is that it's just faster. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be done with this thing. So I worked on it for another hour and I got it like 80% of the way there. I got like maybe another hour and I'll be done. It'll be right. perfect. I mean, I don't have time to be emailing back and forth. And it's like, I went and looked at the code base. I looked at their code base for like 15, 20 minutes going through it. And I got to tell you, I mean, it was a, I couldn't make heads or tails of what the hell they were doing. That's <laughs> like, I was just like, I really contribute to that. I mean, I don't even know what they're doing. I mean, it, the, the code is so complex and I don't think it's very well. There's no comments and it's nothing's really n- laid out very in a very readable way. So it's like, well, I don't really see how it, it's not really built for other people to okay. contribute. Yeah. And maybe it's just me, but I don't really want to deal. It's like, it's like getting in and wearing other people's clothes. Like, I don't know. It's like, you know what? I'll go buy my own. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'll do, I, cause like, I'm not here to solve their problem. I'm here to solve Uber's problem. You know. Cool. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I so like I said. I mean, I've I've been able to get some good usage out of that. Although I have I have found the shortcomings of it being the dynamic aspect, but uh, the non-dynamic aspect it works very nicely, and you can style it exactly how you how you need. But so, uh, well, it, I mean, once again, here's another option opportunity for you to do something and release it to the public. I could, I could. Um, you know, it's funny. It's like um, I have a lot of that code. It's like you know, example number three hundred and fifty-seven. Um, right. Do I want to do outsource? I mean, the thing is that it's like 
I guess this is the trade-off in my mind is like, okay, so in, and to do something like that, you have to write five times the amount of code because you've got to write all kind of conf- special configuration stuff. And is it horizontal scroll or vertical scroll? Are you going to have, you know, up and down arrow buttons or no buttons or, you know, all this stuff. Whereas I can write, you know, 100 lines of code. Mm-hmm. And it'll do everything I, we need it to do with just a couple of potential settings like widths and colors. And we're done. So, well, I suppose the other point is, if you're writing it for Uber, then I guess it's Uber IP, right? Yeah, it would be Uber IP. And, you know, it's just like, I, you know, if they want to go in and fix it, if I have 100 lines of a really clean, easy to understand code, then anyone can go in there and go, okay, you know, this is going to change this one thing. If, I, if, it's, if it's instead, it's 500 or 800 lines of code with all kind of custom configurations. And, well, is the scroll bar on the left or the right side? Is the, it's on a vertical or horizontal? Is this or that? Then you're looking and you're like, then it's going to take them five times as long to understand if they can even get to that point of understanding what I was doing. Now, of course, this is assuming that every 100 lines of code you write is clean and easy to understand. Yeah, well, you know, if it's if it's only 100, I mean, the longer something gets, the harder it gets. Right, right. And I do a good job with my code. I mean, I, I'm very, <laughs> I am very structured. I know how I name everything, how I space everything. I mean, I, because I, I want to come back to something at six months a year. I want, I want to be able to understand what it is I was even doing. <laughs> awesome. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, anyway. Okay, cool. <laughs> So uh okay cool so um all right well I'll I'll bring something up um you know my 600 calorie a day diet yes that never happened that's right well it happened for 3 days and then it happened yeah. for 3 days and then it was too much well um or too I, little so I, so then I decided that what I was going to do was this this uh, Paul McKenna thing uh which is basically like a uh, tackling it from a mental point of view but then a listener uh, Ryad Kala, Kala, who also was one of the guys who actually uh, we read out a comment from on iTunes, uh, very kindly uh, sent me a suggestion of a film to watch called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. So have you heard about this movie? Uh, I have not. Okay, so basically... Well, I, ha- I have because you told me about it about last week, but I had not until you told me about it. Okay, so what, so what happens is it's this Australian guy who's, I don't know, 320 pounds, and um, he's got a number of uh different illnesses going on with him and he's on prescription drugs and he starts investigating alternative therapy and he essentially finds uh one thing that that's really good for you to do is is a juice fast so you basically drink vegetable juice so he decides to go on a 60-day juicing fast system so basically what he does is he just drinks you know juiced (laughs) carrots and and celery and cucumber for uh, 60 days and loses like, I don't know, I think it's a hundred pounds or something like that or 90 pounds. And, uh, it completely gets all off his prescription drugs and gets really, really healthy and looks really, really great. And then during, during his, the time that he does it, he also takes a road trip across America. And during this road trip that he's juicing, he's kind of introducing people to it and saying, Hey, look, I'm doing this crazy juice, this juice fast thing. And people are going, yep, you are kind of crazy. But in the meantime, he's looking better and better every day and he's feeling more energy and and kind of feeling more healthy. And then on his trip, he meets this guy called Phil. Um, he, you know, as he, as he talks to each person about it, he kind of gives them his card and says, hey, listen, if you ever want to try this, just give me a call. So you th- kind of think that the movie's over. He's gone back to Australia. He's looking really, really healthy and really fantastic. He's done his 60 days. But then 
he gets a call from this guy, Phil, who he met in the middle of his trip, this 400-pound trucker. Phil says, look, I'm feeling really desperate. I would really like to give this a try. So the Australian guy called Joe goes over to America, spends a couple of days with him, gets him set up, and then goes back to Australia. In the meantime, leaves a, a documentary crew with Phil. So Phil, this 400-pound guy, stops trucking and moves to this, this uh, suburban village and starts doing this juice thing and gradually gets healthier and healthier and thinner and thinner and, like, loses, like, within 10 days, loses, like, 17 pounds <laughs> and just right. just kind of gets gets healthier and better and better. And then the townspeople see how, you know, the effect that it's having. So all of a sudden, everyone in the town starts trying this juice diet thing. Anyway, it's just a really interesting um, documentary, Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead, and I've decided that I'm going to try it. And when are you starting? Monday. My only concern about that is, yeah. and it's just something you should pay attention to, is like when you go on these really low-calorie diets, you end up losing a lot of muscle. Oh, and, right, right. And so what happens, because your body will not only uh, consume your own fat, it will also consume the muscle. Okay. And of course, in your really severe cases, it will consume its own organs, but it will consume the muscle for energy. And what can happen is that you lose a bunch of uh, fat, but you also lose muscle. And when you lose muscle, muscle burns, burns uh, calories. Mm-hmm. So your metabolism slows down because you have less muscle. And then you put on some weight. And then all of a sudden, what happens, you, all you've done is replace, is you got to be careful that you, if you regain weight, you just regain fat. <laughs> and so you've lost. Well, yeah, that, that, is, that, that is a possibility. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the documentary is at the beginning, they show how, how much vegetables you need to consume to make the, because pretty much you have like, you sort of eat as, drink as much juice as you want, but you primarily try to drink four, four juices a day, four main meals. And into each of these meals goes, I don't know, a pound worth of vegetables or something like that. Just a huge, a massive plate of vegetables. And if you think about it, that's a lot of nutrients and, and protein going into your system. So I, I wonder, the, the impression I get is that by juicing greens, you get a lot of protein as well. So that might make that less likely to happen. Well, I don't think there's a lot of protein in vegetables. Your proteins are like in, in meat and eggs and uh, milk. Uh, things like be- peanut butter, peanuts, peanut butter, beans. Yeah, so but that's, that's something been- worth... Dis- it would be great to, if any listener is uh, experienced about that. But as far as I know, things like broccoli have a, have a lot of protein, much more protein than people think they do. Mm, um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know a specific protein, but I don't think there's much protein in vegetables. There's vitamins, a lot of vitamins, but uh, I, you just want to pay attention to the protein. But it's, it's not so much just not getting enough protein, it's just that you don't eat enough calories and that your body consumes it. It consumes it. So what, you, what, I, what I'm suggesting is... yeah. When you're done with it, you need to start exercising and build that muscle up quickly. Okay. So I, mean, I know you're not, you're gonna, you may not have the energy, and I know you are not all that inclined to go want to work out and lift weights and things. But if you do this and you do lose a bunch of weight, I would then go to phase two and start lifting weights and try and put on 10 or 15 pounds of muscle um, to build that back up past where it was and also that you have a higher metabolism. And then, of course, it'll make you, you know, your body will be in much better shape too. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. I mean, one of the things that does seem to consistently happen to anyone who tries this is that it's, they get massive amounts of energy and all of a sudden feel that they need to exercise to burn off the energy for some, for some strange reason. So we'll see whether that happens to me or not. If it does, yeah. then I'll, then I'll do exactly that. 
I'll do what you suggest. Yeah. So I've been on I've been on my weight loss thing lately, but I'm not dieting. I'm just yeah. Working. You're you're doing the working out thing. So I've lost about I've lost about five pounds. I do an hour a day on the elliptical, keeping my heart rate around one you know mid 130s, which is pretty high. You know maybe upper 120s, 130s, and you know birds like going to 650 calories. That's a lot. An hour is a lot of time. <laughs> so much pain. It, it, well, you know, after a while, you know what happens is I've noticed is that after a while you just kind of get used to it. it. It is brutally painful at start. So you start doing like 20 minutes and then 30 and then you keep going up. And, you know, uh, you're, you're, you just, you just, it's, it's not that your body, gets, your body gets easier in your body because it's not that hard physically to do an hour on an elliptical. It's, it's just psychologically hard because it just gets boring. And one way that I've um, got helped, one thing that's helped that is I've gotten audiobooks, two audiobooks. Yeah. <laughs> I finally set up an account on audible.com. And I got um, one was called Born to Run, which was like about this ultra marathon race and all these crazy super ultra marathoners and this tribe, this lost tribe in Mexico. And I don't know, it's kind of a bunch of crazy characters. So <laughs> that, and the other one I'm reading is, um, are listening to is in the Plex about Google, right? And by Steve Stephen Levy, and uh, just kind of I kind of go back and forth because after one after listening to one, I get a little bored, and you know, but, and I'm like, I right, listen to the other, but it's because sometimes a podcast, I just run out of podcasts that I want to listen to, and, and then I'm stuck there, and it's just hard to push through, and then you, you start getting bored. Um, hey, we we one thing we got a comment um, on last show from Stian about the number of heartbeats per day issue, right? That was a really good. I I suggested him. He needs to write that as a blog post because that would that would hit it. So one one of the things he like he he points out that people who are fitter have a lower heart rate um, more of the time, so their resting heart rate becomes lower. And he he finishes his comment saying, "So I guess I'll be seeing you in the gym then, Justin, right?" As as equipped to say that my general heart rate should be lower. Now, the yeah, because well, you had said that you know you're born with a certain number of heart rate. Yeah. So therefore, beats, yeah. if you're spending a lot of time exercising, you're going to die sooner. And I told, I told you I thought that was total crap. And yeah. So, but the interesting thing is he says, so um, the, the little quip at the end, so I guess I'll be seeing you in the gym then, Justin. Now, what's weird is that I am actually a fringe case because my natural resting heart rate is incredibly low. And oftentimes when I, well, certainly when I was younger, I would go in and they would say, are, are you some kind of super athlete? <laughs> But even now, my heart rate's very low. It's it, it's um, uh, usually less than 60 beats a minute. But when I was, uh, I guess, 20, it was less than 50 beats a minute at that time. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be exercising. No, you remember, no like, it doesn't. Two years ago, when I said, I asked if you exercise, you said, oh, no, I'm healthy. And I said, oh, you don't do anything? I'm like, that's, like, no, I'm so healthy. And I thought that was really strange. And of course, then you got all these different diseases. Yeah, no, you, know, you said at that time when we first met, you said, you know, dude, you know, you've got to be careful. You know, maybe you'll get diabetes one day. And then, like, guess what? <laughs> Six months later, I'm Daddy diagnosed with diabetes. Diabetes. Yeah, that sucked. Jeez. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take care of yourself, and you gotta eat right, and you gotta you know whatever. So, um, all right, move on. Anyways, we interested to see uh, how our respective approaches to losing weight. So, I want to lose twenty. I'm trying to get you know, I want to get back down to my college weight, right? If I can, and um, you know, I don't have that much weight to lose. So I've done five of the of the twenty. And uh, I'm not dieting. I'm not even really curtailing my diet so much. It's just I lift weights for half an hour and then I do an hour elliptical. We'll see how that pans out compared to your pure starvation diet. Well, I guess you should do a little update on um, Epic Night. Well, yeah, basically, you know, base it on is 
Um, I read this article called SQL Alchemy and You. Mm-hmm. And the guy starts talking about SQL Alchemy, which is like a, a in comparison to the Django or Object Relational Mapper. So SQL Alchemy is this very sophisticated, um, I guess you'd call it Object Relational Mapper for uh, Python. And uh, it allows you to basically, it's super configurable and very sophisticated. And it was interesting, though, reading it. It's like, wow, this thing could do all this kind of stuff. But then it's like, but it's so complicated. Mm. It's like, why don't I just write SQL, you know? That's um, right. I was like, well, if, if you're going to have to write all this configuration code and you have to do all this special stuff, I'm like, it's sort of defeating the purpose. It's like, well, what is the point of it? Is it because of abstraction? Well, the, yeah, I guess part of the point is, that you, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, it's sort of that uh, that encapsulation, so that your your data access stuff stays within the model, and uh, and uh, SQL Alchemy just makes abstracts away a lot of the SQL. But I don't know. I mean, I I just thought that sometimes you go so far in a direction that it just becomes complicated in a whole other way. It's and, it's a whole new language in its own right. Yeah, and I, I'm almost like you know. My perspective, in, in, and I'll, this will lead into App Ignite, is develop something that's super simple to use, that's not complex, and that will solve 80 to 90% of your, your problems, or maybe more, maybe 90 to 90% of your issues like that. But then the, for the additional 5 or 10%, you have to completely break out and just go, go to the bone and write it from scratch, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Right? But... For most of the time, you can just you know write a you write a very limited amount of code. So I was looking at that, and I I was like, wow, I, I just couldn't believe how complicated. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of looking at Doctrine, which is sort of the or the equivalent for PHP. And I think I mentioned on the last show that the I don't know what the status is now. Maybe it is included or something with uh, Drupal, but the the Drupal team didn't include Doctrine as part of the standard. I don't know what distribution because there was more code in Doctrine than there was in the Drupal core. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of thing. So I've been work. One thing I've been working on, and I'm trying to. I'm almost done with the uh, a working version of it. Is um, a completely dynamic. Um, I guess you'd call it an object relational mapper for uh, App Ignite, right? Because what would happen before is I would generate all of the code. Um, yeah, App Ignite would generate your uh, generate a lot of the SQL for you, and then I just realized that you know these models. The generated models would still be like five or six hundred lines of code, and if you had to go in and manually change something, you'd have to change it in like eight places, right? Select statements, parsing statements, uh, definitions of properties, in- inserts, updates, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And it was kind of painful because I was use I used Epic Night to generate a big project that I wrote for a client. And but then I had there's a few things that Epic Night wouldn't do, and I had to go in and manually change it. And then I was just like, ugh, you know, this is sort of annoying. Um, and so I thought, I wonder if I can create something where you can sort of just declare the model in PHP, and then it will in in real time if you call an update or an insert or some type of find function on it or delete, it will just do everything it needs to do. Sort of automatically, which I think is sort of how Active Record in Rails works. But I wanted to make it so that it was super, uh, super clean and very succinct, and I've got that almost completely working now. That sounds um, good. But one of the things that I had to work on, the, the final pieces, was the delete. So let's say that you delete. Let's say you have a your object model is that you have a, like a project management 
app. Okay? Mm-hmm. You have a project. Or you, say you have users. Users have one or more projects. Projects have multiple tasks. Tasks can have comments on them. They can also have a many-to-many relationship with tags. Okay, so that's your model. Yeah. And let's say that you then want to delete a user. A user just gets deleted from the system or a project. Well, the, you, you have to go and delete that. You want to delete that user. Then you want to delete all the projects that relate to them. Then you want to delete all of the tasks that relate to the You know, delete any of the many-to-many, delete all the comments, et cetera, right? Mm. So, but you have to figure that out in real, you have to figure that out dynamically based on the declaration of the, of the, of the models, like wh- how you delete stuff and how you set up all the joins to delete it. That, that <laughs> does like, sound very painful. It was calm. It was a little mind bending because it was like, it was recursive. It was dynamic. First of all, it was, a lot of the stuff is, is creating uh, dynamic calls. Like in PHP, you can create, dy- you can sort of dynamically create a class and yeah. write as a string and then call the class or call the method name. But you can also do it statically using, call user func, I think is the name of the function. And you can call, you can sort of pass a string of the, uh, of the class and method name. It'll call it and you pass the parameters to it. So I was calling, it was like recursive, dynamic, static functions, and then passing in the, in the parameters were referenced parameters. And of course you can't pass reference parameters in, uh, in this call static func <laughs> class. So I was just like, damn it. And there was these workarounds. Well, you pass an array that has references to them, but that didn't end up working, you know, even though people claimed it would work. And uh, so I, I had to do some workarounds, but I almost got that working. But the one thing I did try, which ended up not working so well, was I, I was trying to do like, you delete all the models in one delete, mm-hmm. or delete all the records in one delete function. So we delete the, the user, the project, the tasks, the comments, et cetera, in mm-hmm. one delete statement. Yeah. And my SQL... That's some examples. I was looking through documentation. You could do it, but you know, and you do, and you can do some left joins and 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 to make that work. But it turns out that like it wouldn't delete everything. Like I tried it a, a bunch of manual versions of it, but in the end, I think what you have to do is write like a handful of the, uh, what I'm going to do to be safe is just write a delete function for each model or table. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, otherwise it just gets a little too a little too fancy, a little too much, get a little too cute. <laughs> Sorry, a little too. Cl- I think it's my favorite. One of my favorite phrases: "A little too clever by half." Right, but the other thing about that that delete stuff is it it seriously uses up system resources and locks down the table as well. So it can be pretty heavy on the server. So that's why sometimes yeah. it's almost better to d- delete you know much smaller chunks of stuff because say for example, there's a million rows that it's going to delete. That right. could, that could cause problems. I, I know that obviously this, the you know no one's going to have an app that scales out to a million rows, but still, um, try and bite it off into little pieces. It's good. Yeah, I, I think that's right too. I think it's it's just you're less apt to run into error, and it's just um, well the reason I did. I mean, obviously you can use on cascade, you can on NODB tables, and a lot of people right. might probably be using NODB NODB tables, but you don't want it so that it doesn't work on my ISAM. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if you don't have an on cascade, then you need to do manual deletes. And but you want this, you know, I want this thing to be able to handle it. But I, I showed you some of the code. I think I showed you an example model. It was like, you know, has many belongs to here are the, you know, the yeah, field. yeah, no, that's good. That's like the way that root that Ruby on Rails works. That's very nice. Yeah, it was like you know, define a model in fifteen lines of code. Hey, Maybe. um, <clears throat> just switching uh, topics. What did you think of the whole uh, Airbnb fiasco? Did you did you see much about that? 
Well, so I guess I've had two million reserve reservations, and this is the first time anything like that's really happened. Right. So yeah. it's not a one in it's not a one in a million. It's a one in two million. But it's it, it, well, the kind of big deal about it is just the amount of press it's getting. Right. It's obviously not very good for their company. Well, you have a big he said, she said kind of issue going on. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, this EJ who wrote the, uh, whose uh, apartment was burglarized. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is very unfortunate, you know, stuff like, stuff, terrible things like that happen to people, you know, every once in a while and it unfortunately happened to her. Um, and these people just destroyed her house and took all her stuff and, you know, she feels very, you know, invaded and violated and, and is just very freaked out by it. And so, you, you, you know, your heart has to go out to her and, and everything she went through. And, but we don't know what really happened in terms of her interaction with Airbnb because Airbnb is claiming, look, we got in touch with her. We've offered to pay for her stuff. We've been helped her relocate. We've offered it all these things. And she's claiming that that was true at first. And then it wasn't true that they were kind of gone and she was feeling abandoned. But it's funny thing is, is that when she says things like, I feel abandoned, I mean, she's not being clear about, did they not call you within a few days? I mean, she's not being clear. Right. Right. When someone says, I feel this or I feel that I don't, I get kind of suspicious because they say, well, they called me, they called me on the 23rd and then they, they told me they called me the next day and they called me back at the 29th. And then I got right. I mean, if they'd been very specific, then you'd be like, okay, that's more believable. And someone just, Oh, I just feel abandoned. You're like, Hmm. Do you, do you no. think that this will have an, like a, a proportionally um, equivalent effect on their business? I mean, the amount of um, media that this is hitting, right. It's, it's seriously out there in the media. Lots well, of bad press about Airbnb. Is this really well, going to break their business? It's mostly just um, like TechCrunch and stuff. It's not out in the mainstream, and most right. of the users aren't TechCrunch people. It's it's moved beyond the tech, uh, the sort of the technical, you know. Oh digital. no, this it's it's gonna it's gonna hit the you know New York Times. Oh, you're saying it has? You, you, I'm, I'm you pretty saying? sure it has. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it has. No, yeah. it's just the, the Financial Times is on as on Financial Times, but that's the only big story so far. Okay, let me just do a search for Airbnb and Google News. Airbnb horror story continues. Telegraph.co.uk. I mean, if something's on telegraph.co.uk, that means it's mainstream. Yeah, but how many? I'm looking at uh, 60 articles I'm seeing around the world. Yeah, see, that's not that big. Okay. Think about thousands. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a minor. I think... It's a blip. I don't, in the end, I think it's just going to... It'll blow over in a couple weeks, and um, they'll be fine. I mean, it might change... They'll probably, they need to have better customer support for sort of crisis situations like that. And they need to have, they should do for no other reason, you know, than just to, well, I think they should just probably just really take care of her. Even if they don't want to set a precedent that anyone who claims something happened to them, that they're on the hook for it. Well, why don't they have a deposit? Like, why, I mean, what difference would it make? I mean, I know it would cut down their customers, but if you, if you had to pay like a $500 deposit before you used anyone's place then that would pretty much cut it down to zero, right? No one's going to spend $500 and then break up a place. Yeah, no, I think, I think they could start upping the, you know what they could do is you could, set a, you could have a setting for your place, say like I require verified people. Yeah, I require verified people or I require people verified to people pay and deposits. deposits. Yeah, uh, that's a good point, yeah. Because I mean, I was, this, I was thinking about this with, with, in regards to any foo, you know? Um, could something like this happen? Not like this. I mean, what, what could happen is somebody could, um, agree to work 
you know, 10 or 12 hours or something or 20 hours and, and send an invoice through any food and the person doesn't pay. Yeah. But we're going to put lots of warnings like, you know, keep it short <laughs> until they pay, right? right? We only guarantee up to a certain amount. If you go beyond that amount and they have never, and they haven't paid an invoice, then well, you know, that's a risk you're taking on yourself, but it's not, luckily there's not as near, nearly the same kind of risk on the line. It's letting someone stay at your place as there is, you know, working for someone for some hours and they don't pay the invoice. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, I think that the Airbnb should really have like a couple levels of settings of what kind of users approval, verify deposit, that kind of stuff. And, uh, that would probably cut down on a lot. Um, Okay. You, know, you could even do like an insurance thing, right? Like you can buy, uh, you know. Yeah, they should. In fact, they should do that. That that would be, you know, they, they could pay. You could pay per month or whatever per per engagement. Pay twenty dollars for insurance. I mean, I'm sure if if everyone on Airbnb was doing that, that would be a great way for them to make money. Right. Well, if you just think like when you rent a car. Yeah. Do you want to pay insurance? Buy insurance in this? So it's like you rent out your place. Um, you could say, well you know, we pay X dollars or X percent and that, that buys you insurance, some amount of insurance for your place if anything goes wrong. That's a great idea. I think all of those things could probably help them go through, but they, um, until they get that stuff in place, they should, they should have, if, I mean, just no, just no way of telling. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's hard to tell if EJ is blowing things out of proportion because she's, obviously she had a very unfortunate thing happen to her, but we don't know if she's being very honest about what happened or if she's someone who just blew things out, blows things out of proportion. Yeah. Even if something, so if something small happens, she makes it big and something big happens, she makes it humongous and never lets go of it. I mean, we've yeah. met people like that in our lives, right? Yeah. You know, and depending on the person who went through the experience, they might just, they might have completely different reactions to it. Um, and we don't know what Airbnb is doing. I mean, are they like, did they, have they been doing everything they could and getting a contactor? And then they, she writes another post and they're just like, Jesus, I mean, what can we do? And she's just still killing us in the press or have they been kind of like, you know, whatever about it, in which case they deserve it. I mean, there's just no way for us to know. So, but the one thing I will say in Hacker News is one guy, he went off on a list of things that Airbnb should do. They should, they should hire her and they should give her an equity in the company. It's like, dude, that is the stupidest thing <laughs> I have ever heard. Give her equity life. in the company. I mean, I was this guy must be like 18 writing this. So oh we have no God. idea how the world works. Yeah, we're going to get for equity in our company because um, she complained. Control over. Yeah, because she complained. That's what we're going to do. I was <laughs> luckily Jacques. It was it Jacques uh, something. He's um, he's a big Hacker News guy. You've talked about bringing him on the show. Yeah, you know what it is? Um, I don't know his surname. He basically said, uh, "Yeah, no." <laughs> <laughs> not how the world works, kid, or whoever this guy was. But it was just. Silly. But the, the one thing I want to finish it off is Airbnb has a sort of idea that like, you know, our, their basis is that the world is people are basically good and, 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 you know, you can trust people. And the case is, the situation is you can trust most people most of the time, you know, in most situations, but you can't, but there are situations, there are people you can't trust and that's just, it's going to happen every once in a while. Anyway, so why don't we move on? Talk about something well, else. I tell you what, we're, uh, we're, I think we're, we're done. Well, you know, what did I want to mention? One thing, one last thing. Okay. Have you have you been following the the the? Did you listen to This American Life? Their coverage of uh, when patents attack. No, I haven't listened to it, but I've se- I have I've definitely noticed the surge in the press about um about the whole patent stuff. So go on, yeah. Yeah. That's well, listen to that. Listen to it was it's great. I mean, This American Life is a is a great show generally. But yeah. This particular episode was fantastic. It's got the whole it was almost it was almost like sixty minutes investigates. 
intellectual yeah. ventures. And it basically demonstrates that intellectual ventures is just a total um, shakedown operation. So Nathan Mervold, who was head, who started uh, Microsoft Research, and so he's a brilliant physicist guy, and he's kind of this uh, avuncular sort of figure. He's big into cooking and he did in the science and things, but it doesn't it doesn't make up for the fact that he's intellectual ventures is for all intents and purposes just a shakedown operation. They bought thirty thousand patents, and now they are essentially um, threatening all of these companies. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's not intellectual ventures. They've started like a, one thousand, I think it was 1130 shell companies that then go out and shake down people so they can hide behind, huh. which is really shady. So it's like, they won't even stand up. Like, it's like, I'm going to be an asshole, but I'm going to pretend it's not me. That's just right? unbelievable. You know, I'm going to start all these shell companies and hide them and they're all hidden. They, they did the best they could to hide who the original owners were and they would transfer the patents to the shell companies and the shell companies would then go. And, and how does This American uh, Life show that? Uh, well, it's kind of, a, you have to listen to it. I'm not going to listen to it. Okay. I don't want to go is, in. Is it sort of like a scenario where, where they kind of, I don't know, have cameras or microphones on, on a little conversations? Bit. They do interviews and they do some investigation on their part. I thought it was really, it was good. And as a result um, of that, I think there's been some more coverage. I think I've saw some stuff on Reuters and on Forbes. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't mean much when it's just Silicon Valley, Valley people complaining to other Silicon Valley people. Yeah. It's like it's on TechCrunch or it's on what a VC complains about or some tech entrepreneurs because it's the same. It's preaching to the choir, right? It's the same, you know, 100,000 or half a million people who all know that software patents are, by, for the most part, damaging to the industry. And it's people outside. What you have to do is, is if a million people are concerned about something, it, in, from our democracy, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference unless those million people happen to be, you know, incredibly well funded and can hire lobbyists and buy up, essentially buy off politicians. So the only way you have to get it out to the mainstream media and you have to get people to care about it who, you know, are, you know, a much larger group of people to care about it. So the upshot it like- of it is this, this show, This American Life, has brought it to the mainstream media and you are feeling hopeful that now something might get done about it? Hi, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, there, was, there was something, there was an article I have on deck to read. I guess there's a, um, if I can, I don't think I can find it right now, but there is, let me see. There was a, um, there's a blog called Litigation and Trial, the law blog of plaintiff's attorney, Max Kernelly. And he's talking about the, um, about this whole thing and that there's, I guess, a new, Law. Um, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Leahy Smith Leahy Smith America Events Act, which uh, by 304 to 117 vote, and I guess it follows some Senate vote, and they have a, a similar bill. And I guess I, I haven't finished reading the whole article, but uh, essentially what it says is that when you when a, fi- a, a, a patent is filed, that there'll be some period of time that um, it, they're that could be public that objections could bring it up for review and then another set of objections. So it could create a situation that makes it really difficult to file patents, but I think that's probably a good thing, mm-hmm. but it could be a situation that you have individual inventors want to, you know, create something that's in a space that competes with the, you know, uh, Cisco, let's say, and then Cisco repeatedly just keeps filing injunctions and challenges and they can never, uh, and then fi- and, and they start filing their own that competes with it or something. I mean, mm-hmm. you could see it being a- gamed in a different way. So would you like to just get rid of software patents altogether? Yeah, I think business and software patents should be either completely eliminated 
um, would be my preference. But at the very least, I'd say, okay, fine, you got uh, three year, three years. Mm-hmm. You know, seventeen years is absolutely ridiculous, and the way the, the speed at which our businesses are created and destroyed, and the life cycle businesses. I mean, maybe they made sense in the early nineteen hundreds, eighteen hundreds to have seventeen years, but now I think. You know, it's like if you want to spend the money and you've invented some cool way to do something, you know, we'll give you, uh, you know, three years tops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that way it doesn't kill the industry. And people, it's annoying and everyone has to kind of work around in the short term, but, you know, it's three years will go by reasonably fast. But, you know, what is my opinion worth on this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I, just what I think. At the very least, I just hope that they more or less go away. All right. Well, um, was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we signed off? I think that's enough. I mean, I actually, I got to get out of here anyway. So this is actually a good time to stop. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so, all right. Well, good show. Glad to have you back in uh, California. Yeah. And um, just to, to let our listeners know, we will be back on the track of getting some interviews and um, moving. Regular, our last regular week. four shows have been discussion shows, maybe even our last five. So we will get some interview shows coming on the line now. And we'll get some, and we'll we'll be regular with our weekend discussion shows. We'll try not to miss any more of those. Yeah, we're back on track. This yep. is texting. Back on track. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>